On Murder, Considered as One of the Fine Arts, Part 3 From Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas De Quincey This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On Murder, Considered as One of the Fine Arts, Part 3 Thus, gentlemen, I have traced the connection between philosophy and our art, until insensibly I find that I have wandered into our own era. This I shall not take any pains to characterize, apart from that which preceded it, for, in fact, they have no distinct character. The seventeenth and eighteenth centuries, together with so much of the nineteenth as we have yet seen, jointly composed the Augustan age of murder. The finest work of the seventeenth century is, unquestionably, the murder of Sir Edmundbury Godfrey, which has my entire approbation. At the same time, it must be observed that the quantity of murder was not as great in this century, at least amongst our own artists, which, perhaps, is attributable to the want of enlightened patronage. St. Massianus Dondirent Flasse Marones Consulting Grant's Observation on the Bills of Mortality, 4th edition, Oxford, 1665, I find that out of 229,250 who died in London during one period of twenty years in the seventeenth century, not more than eighty-six were murdered, that is, about four three-tenths per annum. A small number this, gentlemen, to found an academy upon, and certainly, where the quantity is so small, we have a right to expect that the quality should be first-rate. Perhaps it was. Yet still I am of the opinion that the best artist in this century was not equal to the best in that which followed. For instance, however praiseworthy the case of Sir Edmund Godfrey may be, and nobody can be more sensible of its merits than I am, still I cannot consent to place it on a level with that of Mrs. Ruscombe of Bristol, either as to originality of design, or boldness and breadth of style. This good lady's murder took place early in the reign of George III, a reign which was notoriously favorable to the arts generally. She lived in College Green with a single maid-servant, neither of them having any pretension to the notice of history but what they derive from the great artist whose workmanship I am recording. One fine morning, when all Bristol was alive and in motion, some suspicion arising, the neighbors forced an entrance into the house and found Mrs. Ruscombe murdered in her bedroom and a servant murdered on the stairs. This was at noon, and, not more than two hours before, both mistress and servant had been seen alive. To the best of my remembrance, this was in 1764, upwards of sixty years therefore have now elapsed, and yet the artist is still undiscovered. The suspicions of posterity have settled upon two pretenders, a baker and a chimney-sweeper. But posterity is wrong. No unpractised artist could have conceived so bold an idea as that of a noonday murder in the heart of a great city. It was no obscure baker, gentlemen, or anonymous chimney-sweeper, be assured, that executed this work. I know who it was. Perens, here there was a general buzz, which at length broke out into open applause, upon which the lecturer blushed and went on with much earnestness. End perens. For heaven's sake, gentlemen, do not mistake me. It was not I that did it. I have not the vanity to think myself equal to any such achievement. Be assured that you greatly overrate my poor talents. Mrs. Ruscombe's affair was far beyond my slender abilities. 
but I came to know who the artist was from a celebrated surgeon who assisted at his dissection. This gentleman had a private museum in the way of his profession, one corner of which was occupied by a cast from a man of remarkably fine proportions. That, said the surgeon, is a cast from the celebrated Lancashire highwayman, who concealed his profession for some time from his neighbors by drawing woolen stockings over his horse's legs, and in that way muffling the clatter which must have else made in riding up a flagged alley that led to his stable. At the time of his execution for highway robbery, I was studying under Cruikshank, and the man's figure was so uncommonly fine that no money or exertion was spared to get in possession of him with the least possible delay. By the connivance of the under-sheriff, he was cut down within the legal time, and instantly put into a chaise and four, so that, when he reached Cruikshank's, he was positively not dead. Mr. Blank, a young student at that time, had the honor of giving him the coup de grace and finishing the sentence of law. This remarkable anecdote, which seemed to imply that all the gentlemen in the dissecting room were amateurs of our class, struck me a good deal, and I was repeating it one day to a Lancashire lady who thereupon informed me that she had herself lived in the neighborhood of that highwayman, and well remembered two circumstances which combined in the opinion of all his neighbors to fix upon him the credit of Mrs. Ruscombe's affair. One was the fact of his absence for a whole fortnight at the period of that murder. The other, that within a very little time after, the neighborhood of this highwayman was deluged with dollars. Now Mrs. Ruscombe was known to have hoarded about two thousand of that coin. Be the artist, however, who he might, the affair remains a durable monument of his genius. For such was the impression of awe and the sense of power left behind by the strength of conception manifested in this murder that no tenant as I was told in 1810, had been found up to that time for Mrs. Ruscombe's house. But, while I thus eulogized the Ruscombean case, let me not be supposed to overlook the many other specimens of extraordinary merit spread over the face of this century. Such cases, indeed, as that of Miss Bland, or of Captain Donnellan, and Sir Theophilus Boughton, shall never have any countenance from me. Fie on these dealers in poison, say I. Can they not keep to the old honest way of cutting throats without introducing such abominable innovations from Italy? I consider all these poisoning cases, compared with the legitimate style, as no better than waxwork by the side of sculptor, or a lithograph print by the side of a fine villapado. But dismissing these, there remain many excellent works of art in pure style, such as nobody need be ashamed to own, as every candid connoisseur will admit. Candid observe, I say, for great allowances must be made in these cases. No artist can ever be sure of carrying through his own fine preconception. Awkward disturbances will arise. People will not submit to have their throat cuts quietly. They will run, they will kick, they will bite, and whilst the portrait painter often has to complain of too much torpor in his subject, the artist in our line is generally embarrassed by too much animation. At the same time, however disagreeable to the artist, this tendency in murder to excite and irritate the subject is certainly one of its advantages to the world in general, which we ought not to overlook, since it favors the development of latent talent. Jeremy Taylor notices with admiration the extraordinary leaps which people will take under the influence of fear. There was a striking instance of this in the recent case of the McKeans. The boy cleared a height such as he will never clear again to his dying day. 
talents also of the most brilliant description for thumping, and indeed for all the gymnastic exercises, have sometimes been developed by the panic which accompanies our artists. Talents else buried and hid under a bushel to the possessors, as much as to their friends. I remember an interesting illustration of this fact, in a case which I learned in Germany. Riding one day in the neighborhood of Munich, I overtook a distinguished amateur of our society whose name I shall conceal. This gentleman informed me that, finding himself wearied with the frigid pleasures, as he so often called them, of mere amateurship, he had quitted England for the continent, meaning to practice a little professionally. For this purpose he resorted to Germany, conceiving the police in that part of Europe to be more heavy and drowsy than elsewhere. His debut as a practitioner took place at Mannheim, and knowing me to be a brother amateur, he freely communicated the whole of his maiden adventure. Quote, Opposite to my lodging, said he, lived a baker. He was somewhat of a miser and lived quite alone. Whether it were his great expanse of chalky face or what else, I know not. But the fact was, I fancied him, and resolved to commence business upon his throat, which, by the way, he always carried bare, a fashion which is very irritating to my desires. Precisely at eight o'clock in the evening, I observed that he regularly shut up his windows. One night I watched him when thus engaged, bolted in after him, locked the door, and addressing him with the greatest suavity acquainted him with the nature of my errand, at the same time advising him to make no resistance which would be mutually unpleasant. So saying, I drew out my tools, and was proceeding to operate. But at this spectacle, the baker, who seemed to have been struck by catalepsy at my first announce, awoke into tremendous agitation. "'I will not be murdered!' he shrieked aloud. "'What for will I lose my precious throat?' "'What for?' said I. "'If for no other reason, for this, that you put alum into your bread. But no matter, alum or no alum, for I was resolved to forestall any argument on that point, know that I am a virtuoso in the art of murder, am desirous of improving myself in its details, and am enamored of your vast surface of throat, to which I am determined to be a customer.' "'Is it so?' said he. "'But I'll find you custom in another line.' And so saying, he threw himself into a boxer attitude. The very idea of his boxing struck me as ludicrous. It is true, a London baker had distinguished himself in the ring, and became known to fame under the title of Master of the Rolls. But he was young and unspoiled, whereas this man was a monstrous featherbed in person, fifty years old and totally out of condition. Spite of all this, however, and contending against me, who am a master in the art, he made so desperate a defense that many times I feared he might turn the tables upon me, and that I, an amateur, might be murdered by a rascally baker. What a situation! Minds of sensibility will sympathize with my anxiety. How severe it was, you may understand by this, that for the first thirteen rounds the baker had the advantage. Round the fourteenth, I received a blow on the right eye which closed it up. In the end, I believe, this was my salvation." for the anger it roused in me was so great, and this and every one of the three following rounds I floored the baker. Round eighteenth, the baker came up piping and manifestly the worse for wear. His geometric exploits in the four last rounds had done him no good. However, he showed some skill in stopping a message which I was sending to his cadaverous mug, in delivering which my foot slipped and I went down. Round nineteenth, Surveying the baker, I became ashamed of having been so much bothered by a shapeless mass of dough, and I went in fiercely and admitted some severe punishment. A rally took place, both went down, baker undermost, ten to three on amateur. 
Round twentieth. The baker jumped up with surprising agility. Indeed, he managed his pins capitally and fought wonderfully, considering that he was drenched in perspiration. But the shine was now taken out of him, and his game was the mere effect of panic. It was now clear that he could last not much longer. In the course of this round we tried a weaving system, in which I had greatly the advantage, and hit him repeatedly on the conch. My reason for this was that his conch was covered with carbuncles, and I thought I should vex him by taking such liberties with his conch, which in fact I did. The next three rounds the master of the roll staggered about like a cow on the ice. Seeing how matters stood, in round twenty-fourth I whispered something into his ear, which sent him down like a shot. It was nothing more than my private opinion of the value of his throat at an annuity office. This little confidential whisper affected him greatly. The very perspiration was frozen on his face, and for the next two rounds I had it all my own way. And when I called time for the twenty-seventh round, he lay like a log on the floor. After which, said I to the amateur, it may be presumed that you accomplished your purpose. You are right, said he mildly. I did, and a great satisfaction, you know, it was to my mind, for by this means I killed two birds with one stone, meaning that he had both thumped the baker and murdered him. Now, for the life of me, I could not see that, for on the contrary, to my mind, it appeared that he had taken two stones to kill one bird, having been obliged to take the conceit out of him first with his fist, and then with his tools. But no matter for his logic, the moral of his story was good, for it showed what an astonishing stimulus to latent talent is contained in any reasonable prospect of being murdered. A pursy, unwieldy, half-cataleptic baker of Mannheim had absolutely fought six-and-twenty rounds with an accomplished English boxer, merely upon this inspiration. So greatly was natural genius exalted and sublimed by the general presence of his murderer. Really, gentlemen, when one hears of such things as these, it becomes a duty, perhaps a little to soften that extreme asperity with which most men speak of murder. To hear people talk, you would suppose that all the disadvantages and inconveniences were on the side of being murdered, and that there were none at all in not being murdered. But considerate men think otherwise. Quote, Certainly, said Jeremy Taylor, it is a less temporal evil to fall by the rudeness of a sword than by the violence of a fever, and the axe to which he might have added the ship-carpenter's mallet and the crowbar, close parens, a much less affliction than a strangery. Very true, the bishop talks like a wise man, and an amateur as he is, and another great philosopher, Marcus Aurelius, was equally above the vulgar prejudices on this subject. He declared it to be one of the, quote, noblest functions of reason to know whether it is time to walk out of the world or not. Book 3, College Translation no sort of knowledge being rarer than this, surely that man must be a most philanthropic character who undertakes to instruct people in this branch of knowledge gratis, and at no little hazard to himself. All this, however, I throw out only in the way of speculation to future moralists, declaring in the meantime my own private conviction that very few men commit murder upon philanthropic or patriotic principles, and repeating what I have already said once at least, that, as to the majority of murderers, they are very incorrect characters. With respect to the Williams murders, the sublimest and most entire in their excellence that ever were committed, I shall now allow myself to speak incidentally. Nothing less than an entire lecture, or even an entire course of lectures, would suffice to expound their merits. But one curious fact connected with his case I shall mention, 
because it seems to imply that the blaze of his genius absolutely dazzled the eye of criminal justice. You all remember, I doubt not, that the instruments with which he executed his first great work, the murder of the Mars, were a ship's carpenter's mallet and a knife. Now the mallet belonged to an old Swede, one John Peterson, and bore his initials. This instrument Williams left behind him, in Mars' house, and it fell into the hands of the magistrates. Now, gentlemen, it is a fact that the publication of this circumstance of the initials led immediately to the apprehension of Williams, and, if made earlier, would have prevented his second great work, the murder of the Williamsons, which took place precisely twelve days after. But the magistrates kept back this fact from the public for an entire twelve days, and until that second work was accomplished. That finished, they published it, apparently feeling that Williams had now done enough for his fame, and that his glory was at length placed beyond the reach of accident. As to Mr. Thurtell's case, I know not what to say. Naturally, I have every disposition to think highly of my predecessor in the chair of this society, and I acknowledge that his lectures were unexceptionable. But, speaking ingenuously, I do really think that his principal performance as an artist has been much overrated. I admit that at first I was myself carried away by the general enthusiasm. On the morning when the murder was made known in London, there was the fullest meeting of amateurs that I had ever known since the days of Williams. Old bedridden connoisseurs who had got into a peevish way of sneering and complaining, quote, that there was nothing doing, end quote, now hobbled down to our club room. Such hilarity, such benign expression of general satisfaction, I have rarely witnessed. On every side you saw people shaking hands, congratulating each other, and forming dinner parties for the evening. And nothing was to be heard beside the triumphant challenges of, Well, will this do? Is this the right thing? Are you satisfied at last? But in the midst of this I remember we all grew silent on hearing the old cynical amateur, L.S., that laudatemporous acti stumping along with his wooden leg. He entered the room with his usual scowl, and as he advanced he continued to growl and stutter the whole way. Not an original idea in the whole piece, mere plagiarism, base plagiarism from the hints that I threw out. Besides, the style is as hard as Albert Duret, as coarse as Fuseli. Many thought that this was mere jealousy and general waspishness, but I confess that when the first glow of enthusiasm had subsided, I have found the most judicious critics to agree that there was something falsetto in the style of Thurtell. The fact is, he was a member of our society, which naturally gave a friendly bias to our judgments, and his person was universally familiar to the Cockneys, which gave him, with the whole London public, a temporary popularity that his pretensions are not capable of supporting. For opinionum commentenda de la dice nature judicial confirmant. There was, however, an unfinished design of Thurtell's for the murder of a man with a pair of dumbbells, which I admired greatly. It was a mere outline that he never completed, but to my mind it seemed every way superior to his chief work. I remember that there was great regret expressed by some amateurs that this sketch should have been left in an unfinished state. But there I cannot agree with them, for the fragments and first bold outlines of original artists have often a felicity about them which is apt to vanish in the managements of the details. The case of the McKeans I consider far beyond the vaunted performance of Thurtell, indeed above all praise, and bearing that relation, in fact, to the immortal works of Williams, which the Aeneid bears to the Iliad. But it is now time that I should say a few words about the principles of murder, not with a view to regulate your practice, 
but your judgment. As to old women and the mob of newspaper readers, they are pleased with anything providing it is bloody enough. But the mind of sensibility requires something more. First, then, let us speak of the kind of person who is adapted to the purpose of the murderer. Secondly, of the place where, thirdly, of the time when, and other little circumstances. As to the person, I suppose it is evident that he ought to be a good man, because, if he were not, he might himself, by possibility, be contemplating murder at the very time, and such diamond-cut diamond tussles, though pleasant enough where nothing better is stirring, are really not what a critic can allow himself to call murders. I could mention some people, I have no names, who have been murdered by other people in a dark lane, and so far as all seem correct enough, but, on looking farther into the matter, the public had become aware that the murdered party was himself, at the moment, planning to rob his murderer at the least, and possibly to murder him if he had been strong enough. Whatever that is the case, or may be thought to be the case, farewell to all the genuine effects of the art. For the final purpose of murder, considered as a fine art, is precisely the same as that of tragedy. In Aristotle's account of it, quote, to cleanse the heart by means of pity and terror, end quote. Now terror there may be, but how can there be any pity for one tiger destroyed by another tiger? It is also evident that the person selected ought not to be a public character. For instance, no judicious artist would have attempted to murder Abraham Newland. For the case was this. Everybody read so much about Abraham Newland, and so few people ever saw him, that there was a fixed belief that he was an abstract idea. And I remember that once, when I happened to mention that I had dined at a coffee house in company with Abraham Newland, everybody looked scornfully at me, as though I had pretended to have been played billiards with Prester John, or have had an affair of honor with the Pope. And, by the way, the Pope would be a very improper person to murder, for he has such a virtual ubiquity as the father of Christendom, and, like the cuckoo, is so often heard but not seen, that I suspect that most people regard him also as an abstract idea. Where, indeed, a public character is in the habit of giving dinners, quote, with every delicacy of the season, end quote, the case is very different. Every person is satisfied that he is no abstract idea, and therefore there can be no impropriety in murdering him, only that his murder will fall into a class of assassinations, which I have not yet treated. Thirdly, the subject chosen ought to be in good health, for it is absolutely barbarous to murder a sick person, who is usually quite unable to bear it. On this principle, no cockney ought to be chosen who is above twenty-five, for after that age he is sure to be dyspeptic. Or at least, if a man will hunt with that warren, he ought to murder a couple at one time. If the cockneys chosen should be tailors, he will of course think it his duty, on the old established equation, to murder eighteen. And here, in this attention to the comfort of sick people, you will observe the usual effect of a fine art to soften and refine the feelings. The world in general, gentlemen are very bloody-minded, and all they want in a murder is a copious effusion of blood. Gaudy display in this point is enough for them. But the enlightened connoisseur is more refined in his taste, and from our art, as from all the other liberal arts when thoroughly cultivated, the result is to improve and to humanize the heart. So true it is that, quote, in juices didisi fideliter arts in maliot mores nic sinit esferos, a philosophic friend, well known for his philanthropy and general benignity, suggests that the subject chosen ought also to have a family of young children, wholly dependent on his exertions, by way of deepening the pathos. 
and undoubtedly this is a judicious caution. Yet I would not insist too keenly on this condition. Severe good taste unquestionably demands it, but still, where the man was otherwise unobjectionable in points of morals and health, I would not look with too curious a jealousy to a restriction which might have the effect of narrowing the artist's sphere. So much for the person. As to the time, the place, and the tools, I have many things to say which at present I have no room for. The good sense of the practitioner has usually directed him to night and privacy. Yet there have not been wanting cases where this rule was departed from with excellent effect. In respect to time, Mrs. Ruscombe's case is a beautiful exception, which I have already noticed. And in respect both to time and place, there is a fine exception in the Annals of Edinburgh, year 1805, familial to every child in Edinburgh, but which has unaccountably been defrauded of its due portion of fame among English amateurs. The case, I mean, is that of a porter of one of the banks, who was murdered whilst carrying a bag of money, in broad daylight, on turning out of High Street, one of the most public streets in Europe, and the murderer is to this hour undiscovered. Set fugit interia, fugit interperilis tempus, singula dum capti circumvectitur amor. And now, gentlemen, in conclusion, let me again solemnly disclaim all pretensions on my own part to the character of a professional man. I never attempted any murder in my life, except in the year 1801, upon the body of a tomcat, and that turned out differently from my intention. My purpose, I own, was downright murder. Semper ergo auditor tantum, said I, nunquami ruponem and I went downstairs in search of Tom at one o'clock on a dark night with the animus and no doubt with the fiendish looks of a murderer. But when I found him, he was the act of plundering the pantry of bread and other things. Now this gave a new turn to the affair, for the time being one of general scarcity, when even Christians were reduced to the use of potato bread, rice bread, and all sorts of things, it was downright treason in a tomcat to be wasting good wheaten bread in the way he was doing. It instantly became a patriotic duty to put him to death, and as I raised aloft and shook the glittering steel, I fancied myself rising like Brutus, effulgent from a crowd of patrons, and as I stabbed him, I, quote, called aloud on Tully's name and bade the father of his country hail. Since then, what wandering thoughts I may have had of attempting the life of an ancient ewe, of a superannuated hen, and such small deer are locked up in the secrets of my own breast. But for the higher departments of the art, I confess myself to be utterly unfit. My ambition does not rise so high. No, gentlemen, in the words of Horace, Fungos vise cotis excudum, ridere erquart ferum vele, exors ipsa secande. End of On Murder Considered as One of the Fine Arts from Miscellaneous Essays by Thomas De Quincey.